Well, welcome everyone. Um, welcome to this Sydney Ideas lecture series at the University of Sydney and to the Charles Perkins Auditorium. I'm Pip Patterson, Deputy Vice-Chancellor Education at the University of Sydney um, and we are of course absolutely delighted to have Professor Carl Wieman here today and we're grateful to the School of Medical Sciences, the Faculty of Science, the Science of Learning Science Research Node of the Charles Perkins Centre and especially Professor Phil Peronic for enabling Carl's visit today. Um, before we begin proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built and as we engage in teaching, learning and research within this university, we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. I'm really delighted to introduce Professor Carl Wieman today. He holds a joint appointment in the Department of Physics and the Graduate School of Education at Stanford University. <coughs> Professor Wieman is well known for his extensive experimental research in atomic physics, work which has of course been recognised by numerous awards, including the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2001 for the first creation of a Bose-Einstein condensate. Professor Wieman has also conducted extensive work in science education at university level and this work has been recognised by numerous awards as well, including Carnegie Foundation University Professor of the Year in 2004, the Ersted Medal for Physics Education and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Science Teachers Association. Professor Wieman served as founding chair of the Board of Science Education of the National Academy of Sciences in the US and was founder of FET, which provides online interactive simulations that are used 100 million times per year to learn science. That is extraordinary. He directed large-scale change in teaching methods across university science departments at two universities, the Universities of Colorado and British Columbia, and we may even hear a little bit about that. He also served as Associate Director for Science in the Office of Science and Technology Policy in the White House in 2010-12. As Professor Wieman explained to an audience at the University's Australia Higher Education Conference yesterday, he's been working in the area of educational research for 25 years, but his education-focused work has attracted much broader attention since he received the Nobel Prize, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> The format for this afternoon is a presentation from Professor Wieman and then we'll open the floor up to your questions. Um, please join me now in welcoming Professor Wieman to talk on a scientific approach to teaching. Okay, well thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here and thank you for that nice introduction. Uh, Today I'm going to talk about a scientific approach to really uh, science and engineering education. In fact, uh, there's really good reasons to believe that these ideas apply to almost all uh, disciplines, but we really just have good data from science and engineering classrooms at the university level. So first, I, I want to make the point about the importance of science and engineering education in the modern world. It's really much more important than it used to be. And it's because um, 
of the in the modern economy there's there's so many aspects so many occupations that uh, are important uh, or it's important to have some basic technical literacy uh, but to be successful in that economy one needs to have uh, some basic understanding of the way science and engineering and technology works and for that economy to thrive, you need a lot of people with those sort of capabilities. And in addition, in the modern democracy, I mean, we have we have so many uh, big societal issues like global change and choice of energy sources and use of resources, et cetera, which are fundamentally technical, but they're hard. And if we're going to have a population that can make wise decisions about these critical issues, they have to have a better understanding of, of science than they do right now. So we really need, the, the educational goal really has to be to have all students, really independent of what their future occupations are going to be, to understand and think about science and engineering more like scientists and engineers do. And so my talk is really going to be about what does this mean and how do we how can we achieve this uh, challenging goal? And I'm going to argue that there's really considerable hope that we can be successful on this using basically a scientific approach to, to education. And it's because the reason for this optimism is really because of new progress and insights that have come in the past couple of decades from three areas of research which are now seeing as quite closely related. Uh, Cognitive psychologists who work in laboratories primarily to study how people think and learn at a very fundamental level, uh, brain research, and then the university people doing studies like myself and many others in the university uh, science and engineering classroom. And from the, these three areas in the past couple of decades, we really have gotten a, a nice consistent picture of areas coming together to give us guiding principles about what's needed for achieving learning or complex learning of you know thinking like a scientist. And so but before I get into this though I, I want to sort of say give you a basic perspective on how this is different than how people have thought about education in the past or most people are still thinking about this, but uh, education currently. But really, the problem with education has been that everybody's an expert in it. Okay, the problem with improving education is that so there's countless opinions. Anybody who learned anything, let alone went to school, is sure they know the right way that things should be done, that things should be taught, and so you have all these opinions, and they're all. Everybody considers theirs equally valid. And so you have things jumping around from one, you know, who's ever talks the loudest, the latest fad, and education sort of jumps around and follows that. But it's in exactly this situation where there's lots of opinions that, that people have, which is where the scientific approach to solving problems is really useful when you can figure out ways to do careful experiments and collect data to separate out what really works, what's really true and valid, and uh, from all these opinions and knowing what we should do. And so 
What I'm going to talk about today is really how this has come to be doing now in the field of, of science and engineering education, at least at the university level, to show you we now have these kind of research results and conclusions. But before I go into details on that, I'm going to give you a, a, a little uh, appetizer to show you what this is really capable of, of doing, taking this scientific approach. And so this example is really looking at the learning that, that takes place in, in a class. And so it took two large sections in room almost this size of introductory physics, carefully tested that these two sections of the same course, carefully tested that the populations in these two sections were, were very nearly identical in very many different ways. And then in the two sections covered exactly the same set of learning objectives and the same amount of class time. In the, and then the students were tested, uh, given the, a common test uh, right after they covered this in three lectures. And the, the two sections, you know, the difference was that one of these sections was taught by someone who was very experienced teaching this material, taught a number of times, with high student ratings. And so by the standards of, of this university and just about every university in North America, this person was, was a good physics teacher. And the, the experimental group was taught by a new PhD uh, in physics who'd been trained in scientific, these methods and ideas of scientific teaching. So how did the results between these two sections compare? Well, we're shown in this histogram here. And so you can see that the, this is the histogram of test number students versus test scores for the tradition, whoops, uh, sorry, the, having a little trouble figuring out the control button, there we go. Uh, yeah, so here's the traditional lecture section in red and the, the scientific teaching in white. And you can see there's really a profound difference here. And so you have something where you say, gee, this function is supposed to be a good teacher. We've got the same populations producing dramatically differences in learning. What's really, you know, what's going on? What can possibly explain this? And so that's what I'm going to show you in the rest of my talk as to why this works that way. But before I do that, I'm going to give you going a little digression of how I came to change my views about teaching and learning in a profound way and, and got into this way. And so I could go back about 30-something, 40 years now to when I started first teaching physics. And I took the approach that I only think I've seen and what I think everybody takes when they're called upon to teach something is I think about the subject really hard, get it all figured out in my own mind very clearly. And so then I could go and I tell the students how to think about it so they could understand it the same way I did. I then give them some problem to, problem to solve. And if they could do it, great. It must mean they now understood it like I did. And if they couldn't do the problem, well, there must be something wrong with the students because I clearly understood it, and I just told it to them, right? Now, you know, many of my colleagues in this position, what they would do at that time was uh, they would figure, okay, we should just get rid of the students. Obviously, they're not capable. 
I was nicer, though, uh, than any of those. And so usually what I would try would be telling them again louder with the idea that maybe it would work better that second time. Okay? But, you know, if, even though I wasn't a great teacher, I was always a good experimentalist. And so I would regularly kind of talk with my students and sample what they were really coming away from my classes learning. And it was clear that this idea of me figuring out and telling the students what was going on, you know, my brilliantly clear explanations were leaving most of them quite baffled. And when I looked at how my colleagues were doing, they weren't doing really much better. And so for many years, I just considered this a frustrating puzzle, you know, or not a puzzle, this was just a frustrating fact of life that, you know, it just wasn't, couldn't really teach people that effectively. There were just fundamental barriers here. And my enlightenment and change in this view really did not come through anything to do with my undergraduate teaching. It actually came through my research in atomic physics. And in there, I would, in my research, I would work very closely with, with graduate students and pay a great deal of attention to their development as physicists, because that was, you know, partly was being idealistic, partly my own self-interest. The better they were, the better the research that I got credit for. You know, that's the way the system works. So, and over time, I came to see there was a really basic question about the graduacy. So, the first part of this question was, they came into my, they didn't get into my lab unless they had many years of getting very good grades in maths and science and physics courses. But when I put them in the lab to research, they really were pretty clueless about doing, actually doing physics, in spite of these great uh, grades and courses. But that was only half the story. This, the second half was, once they were put into the lab, after just a couple of years of working in this research lab, they had turned into expert physicists. And so, you know, the first few times I saw it, I thought it was just some some curiosity about the individual, but over time I kind of see, no, there was a basic puzzle here that this seemed to happen over and over again. And if anything, the students who did the very best in courses turned out to be kind of mediocre, actually, at being physicists. And it was the students who weren't so that spectacular courses who were the best. And so once it became clear to me that there was something fundamental here, it just was a consistent pattern, I started thinking, well, you know, trying to figure out an explanation that makes sense of this. And, you know, I first this sort of hypothesis, well, maybe the human brain has to go through the equivalent of a 17-year caterpillar stage before it can blossom into a physicist butterfly. Um, but I wasn't so sure that was right. So I really seriously went into looking at, at the research on how people learn, particularly how they learn physics, and discovered that in fact people for a couple of decades had been doing research on how people learn physics at the university level. And so I studied that and came to realize that there wasn't a puzzle here. It was completely understandable, the explanation for what I had thought was puzzling. It gave me a very different way to think about learning. It made it clear that we could improve how we actually teach physics and more broadly science and engineering courses. 
and got me started 25 years or so ago actually doing physics education research. So a long time I've had my atomic physics group here and my physics education group there. And so basically I'm going to talk to you then about what I learned in that uh, activity. And so I'm going to start by looking, you know, I'm looking and I would argue that the goals for most of our courses are having students learn to think, you know, like scientists. Now we're not going to turn them, especially in any given course, we're not going to turn them into expert scientists, but how much do we move them more towards that kind of thinking? And when I say, you know, moving them to be more expert-like, and particularly looking at the kind of decisions they make and what they weigh in the, in, you know, in the relevant area. What information do they look at and, and what decisions do they arrive at? And how is that kind of thinking learned? And so these first two parts are really the cognitive psychology part of the talk. And then I'm going to talk about examples from the college science classroom, uh, university science classroom, the, uh, of implementing these concepts about learning in the classroom and what kind of results they now, one of the things I'm not going to do, because I, I just don't have time, is discussing the, the details and questions about actually implementing these ideas effectively in a particular course. And so, but we can defer that to the, to the question period. Lots of important things come up about student buy-in and motivation and so on. And as part of these science education initiatives where we transformed how something like 250 faculty teach, we learned an awful lot about those details. So I'm happy to talk about them. I'm just not going to stay down the main lecture to go into it. Um, now, it generally, if you look at sort of research on learning, you can condense it into a few basic components. There's motivation, what gets the person and the importance of having a person want to learn, the importance of connecting with their prior thinking in, in learning anything, and also the basic ideas about how the memory and brain process and remembers information. Um, and then finally, there's the ideas of, of explicit practicing of expert thinking and with timely and specific feedback. Now, my talk today, I'm really going to focus just on the last two. The, previous, the, the three earlier are all important, and they really are essential for enabling the last two. But I'm going to, in this decision, I'm going to talk about the last two because I think it helps sort of give a, a basic principle that people can uh, start with in thinking about this. Okay. So I'm going to start with what it is the thinking, the expert thinking, that we really want the students to move towards. And cognitive psychologists have studied how experts in a whole variety of different areas, musicians, chess players, historians, etc., think. And they've identified it's kind of remarkable. There's certain very consistent components of thinking across, of expertise across all these different areas and there's a very consistent way that this expertise is actually learned. And so uh, starting with the components of expertise or expert 
you know, expert thinking in these across all fields. The first one is really obvious to everybody. Okay, experts have a lot of knowledge about their subject, but the other two aren't as obvious. It turns out that in any area of expertise you pick, experts in that area all have a consistent uh, and unique organizational framework by which they organize all this factual knowledge that they have and that organizational framework makes them very efficient and effective at actually uh, picking, choosing, and applying the correct knowledge when faced with solving a problem. And so these organizational frameworks uh, involve you know, looking for and recognizing particular complex patterns and relationships and hierarchies of importance of ideas and, and characteristics of the, of the situation. And much of what we talk about as scientific concepts or uh, scientific concepts really just the way scientists and any or engineers and any particular uh, discipline took a whole bunch of pieces of information and saw how it could be organized in sort of one unified theme, like conservation of energy, which then, when faced with some new problem, they could you very quickly decide whether that idea, whether all that information was going to be useful for this situation to solve the problem or was irrelevant and they could not worry about it. Okay. So those are the, the first two. And then the third com general component of expertise is ability to monitor one's understanding and thinking. And so what I mean by that is, you know, an expert in working on a problem, they've got a little voice in the back of their head sort of saying, you know, do you really understand this? Is this really be a sensible way to be solving this problem? And then they've got another little voice that's busy answering those questions, either saying, yeah, it seems to be going okay, or, gee, I don't know, this doesn't seem to make so much sense. You better step back and think about working in a different direction. Okay, so these are the three basic components and what the research also shows is that for every person in every field, uh, they're not born with this. Uh, it requires many hours of intense practice to actually develop these expert thinking capabilities and particularly radical is the idea that that it takes everybody about the same number of hours. Why is that radical? That's radical because our society has very strong opinions about talent and innate ability. And if everybody's taken the same number of hours to practice to reach the same level of expertise, it sort of suggests there isn't, uh, you know, those concepts of talent and innate ability just don't stand up to that test. So whatever you feel about that, uh, I think the, this idea that, that these many hours of intense practice and to reach a sort of university faculty level, it's sort of you know, many thousands of hours. That's for any students in the audience, sort of a depressing thought, but um, that's the way it works. Uh, so, but that we're now realizing really quite recently is likely a basic biological requirement. And the reason I say that is because brain research is really showing that in this intense practice in the thinking about the discipline, 
uh, the brain is really substantially changed. The neurons, if you like, are sort of significantly rewired and it's to enhance the kind of thinking and problem solving. And it's really within that rewired brain is where the expertise lies. And so it just demands that kind of time for the brain to change that much. So it's a really very close analogy to the idea uh, that, you know, if I want to build up this muscle, uh, since we don't have steroids for the brain yet, uh, you know, there's really only one way to do it. I have to use it strenuously over a long period of time. In response to that, the body says, okay, I've got to make that muscle bigger and stronger. And it does something very similar to these demands on the brain to, uh, to change and improve it. That's a very different way of thinking about how the brain uh, exists. As a, previously, it was thought it's really quite a static entity, and it's not. It's quite uh, yeah, much more plastic than people realize. Okay, so if that's what expertise is, and it takes these thousands of hours of intense practice, uh, the research also shows it's not just any kind of practice. It's a very specific kind of practice to develop expertise, and it's true in every field. That you, the, the practice has to be very explicitly practicing exactly what the elements, the thinking involved in expertise are, and then the learner has to be getting feedback on the, on how well they're doing that practice, and so to guide them to improve and get better at it. And so, just to now, not to leave this not so completely abstract, let's switch to some general components uh, of expertise in all areas of science and engineering. Okay? So, one of them is in every area, one has a certain set of concepts and mental models that, that you know, a scientist or an engineer in the field uses, and more importantly, they have a set of selection criteria that allows them in a given problem to decide which of those concepts apply and are useful and which don't, okay? Uh, and so part of expertise is always looking at a situation and sorting through and deciding which of those concepts should I apply. Uh, secondly is these kind of complex pattern recognition systems when looking at a problem, deciding what information is relevant and need to solve it, what's irrelevant. Uh, when you get an answer, deciding, uh, having a set of criteria for evaluating, does this answer make sense, does this conclusion make sense, is there a better way to solve this problem, uh, very specific ways in each area each discipline, people actually test and evaluate those things. So, you know, I can't tell you how a physiologist would ever test their answer. You know, I know how a physicist would in a physics problem, but I do know a physiologist will have a very specific physiology-related criteria they'll use in deciding any answer is correct. Uh, and then finally, in every area of science and engineering, they have these specialized ways to represent information in their field. Experts move very fluently between different representations, and in doing so, gain new insights about the, the problem and help them solve it. Okay? So it's really 
you know, practicing doing these sort of things, under sorting things into sets of concepts, deciding what concepts apply in a given situation, testing one's, explicitly testing one's answer and developing criteria for doing that, that's the kind of things that the a person has to be practicing and getting feedback on if they're going to become more expert in subject. Now, of course, I haven't mentioned anything about topics here, right? And of course, usually in teaching and the curriculum, all the discussions all about what topics are we going to teach the students, okay? And what information are we going to give them? What I'm arguing here is that I won't say information is not and topics aren't important, but it's it's really important to recognize that it's only a, a, a part, and in some ways a smaller part of the story, that this, the knowledge about a discipline, it's, it's, it's important, but only if it's integrated with when and how to use that knowledge. We have many examples from science education research that students can learn a whole bunch of facts and procedures, but when given a problem, they don't realize you know, they don't access, they don't realize at all anything about how to use those things. That talk about disembodied knowledge, it sort of floats off there, not connected with anything else. Useful, meaningful knowledge is really this is incorporated in this whole structure of expertise, and that's what you need the learner, you want to learn to get. So, what's the role of the teacher in all this? Well, if you think about what I've been focusing on is what's got to happen in the learner's brain to become more expert-like. And the teacher, okay, the teacher is, is the one that supports that. And so that means they've got to be thinking at the appropriate, you know, especially worrying about motivation and all those things, but uh, what's the kind of practice task that embody the thinking to be practiced at the appropriate level and with the content uh, that the learner is involved with, and then providing, having the learner practice, and then providing with the sort of necessary guiding feedback to enhance their learning, and then finally motivating the learner to put in the absolutely necessary hard work to actually learn. And so if you think about this, in, in general, this is very much what any good athletic coach does. And so I like to think about what is an effective science teacher is really one who's working as a cognitive coach in, in making things work. Now, also, but if you think about what's involved in doing this effectively, you can see that all three of these ta basic tasks um, require a very high level of content mastery, you know, expertise in the subject. You've got to, to design practice tasks. You have to know what expert scientific thinking is in whatever area you're talking about. And you also have to have that if you're going to evaluate if the learner is actually doing that or not. And also why to, be, to better convince them of why the subject is worth putting that effort in. And so, I would actually argue that this is really the fundamental and ultimately only real justification of the research university, where you bring together the people who are the, the most experts in these fields of science and engineering and other disciplines 
in the subject, and you also entrust them with educating the students. Uh, you know, this this shows why this this the benefits to having the, the most teachers who are most expert in the subject also teaching them. But it only that justification really only stands up if the teachers, these experts are also being teaching in a somewhat expert way to ensure that expertise is getting transferred to the students. Because I'll about to show you, unless you teach properly, it does not. Okay, so how do you apply these ideas of you know, giving students practice, expert thinking and feedback in a classroom? Uh, well, I'm going to pick an example of what I do in a classroom like this, because that's more challenging than in a smaller class. Uh, and so, in a large, example, large introductory physics class, I was teaching about introductory uh, electric current and voltage. I would start by not wasting valuable class time with simple information transfer. You know, once the technology of the printing press came along, we didn't need to have the like, you know, class time devoted to transferring information from one person to many. And so, all the students would have a very targeted pre-class reading assignment, cover the basic facts and terminology needed for the class that day. They'd have a brief online quiz to reward them for actually doing that. And then class doesn't have to start with me transferring information. I would give them a question, to, a problem to solve. For example, this one with electric circuits, uh, light bulbs and batteries, asking them, okay, if I close that switch, what's going to happen to the brightness of bulb number two? And I give them a number of choices here. And every student has a clicker, and so they have to answer uh, individually with this, and the computer records who they are and what answer they chose. Now, I, particularly since I've been at Stanford, I've seen a lot of poor use of clickers by instructors, so I want to emphasize a little more about what clickers do and don't provide for you. And, you know, they don't really accomplish any teaching, education, learning by themselves. They can give an, a quick feedback to the instructor as to something about how well the students are, know this already or not. But from the student's perspective, what they really do is they make the student have to give an answer at which they're accountable for, and commit to an answer which they're accountable for at some level. Because even though oftentimes I don't grade these on, to, on, any, on correctness, because I want to ask questions that are really hard for the students, um, the fact that you know the computer and therefore I as the instructor can look in there and see what you chose, you, you take the question much more seriously, think about it more, more deeply, and are much better primed to learn than if I had just said, okay, think about this question for a minute, and then we'll go on. So it, so it acts, the clicker, first thing, it, it really acts to prime them for learning, as well as giving a little uh, initial feedback to me. Okay, then I don't show the students the answer, I don't show what uh, their votes were, uh, I then have them discuss, and as sort of every three adjacent students as part of a consensus group, I have them discuss with their neighbors, and then uh, what the answer is, the reasons for it, and then re-vote. 
And while they're doing that, I'm not standing back here, I'm running up and down the aisles, listening in on those conversations, getting little snapshots as to what's going on in the students' brains. You know, what aspects are they getting straight and what things are they confused upon uh, about. And then finally, I'll go ahead and show, you know, demonstrate what happens, show them the clicker results, uh, and then, uh, but have a follow-up summary in which now I can give them feedback on what conceptual models they're using, what aspects are correct, what aspects are incorrect and how to change and what needs to change. Um, I particularly emphasize the feedback on what's incorrect. This is where kind of psychology for two reasons. One is when I see a lot of instructors doing this, they see, okay, a bunch of students got it wrong, so here's the right answer, thinking that actually accomplishes learning. It doesn't, okay? This is one thing I've learned from a cognitive psychologist I work with. All the learning takes place when people find out they were wrong and why they were wrong. And so it's the really essential part is to go over, over what aspects of the thinking were not correct and why they were not correct so the, so the learner can understand how to adjust that. Now, when you teach this way, this then also generates many additional student questions as they sort of deepen their tests, their conceptual ideas, they extend the material in, the, in new directions. You sort of have to, is more, you get more expert and sort of guide those to cover lots of additional material. Um, so how is this doing what I'm calling for? Well, if you think about it, I gave the students a problem there. They had to decide what was relevant and what was irrelevant in that problem. And that problem was very carefully chosen because it, it involves, uh, or rather, we know students have come in with different conceptual models of electric currents. And that problem gives you different answers depending on your conceptual model. And so they have to sort through what conceptual model is right. They have to test it against, uh, against what actually happened. They, they test it in their discussions with other students. And so they're thinking like, you know, thinking like a physicist, thinking through issues like a physicist in that. And they're getting feedback that's guiding their thinking and getting it from other students. They're getting it from me being a much more informed instructor as to what their thinking was. And they're getting it from comparing their predictions to what actually happened uh, in the demonstration. Now, I want to emphasize, so that's what's needed in an effective class, for, or that's what's needed, how one can put these principles in play uh, of learning into a classroom like this. That's not enough. There's just not enough time in the classroom to change the student's brain. So you need to make sure that you have a homework and exams that continue giving this practice of expert thinking and feedback to basically uh, achieve the maximum learning you can from a course. Uh, so how does this work? I mean, does this really work? So I'm going to give you some examples from applying these ideas in the university classroom. Uh, there's about a thousand or somewhat more than that uh, research studies I came up with a couple of years ago when I did a quick survey of this, which are comparing uh, this, the traditional standard lecture approach with these kind of research-based teaching across a whole variety, uh, 
variety of really all the different fields of science and engineering. So big net meta-analysis discussed here. Uh, and the, looked at this and concluded these, these methods consistently show greater learning, lower failure rates, and there's less but still substantial evidence that while they impact affect all the students uh, beneficially, there's maybe somewhat larger impact on sort of at-risk uh, students. So I'm going to just give you a few quick examples of my favorites in this research showing the kind of results that can be obtained or are obtained. Uh, this is one that I like because it involved many, uh, multiple different instructors across multiple sections and the same instructors just changed the methods they were teaching by which they were teaching and compared the learning that uh, took place. So uh, it was done in introductory physics. It, tested how well students could learn to apply these basic concepts of force and motion to make predictions in some simple real-world situation they hadn't seen before, like cars running into trucks, to see how well they could make predictions like a physicist would using these concepts. We have some fairly or quite carefully developed tests of this that we use in physics. And so they collected data on all these instructors over many years, and they found that they averaged a learning gain of about 0.3, which means the students learned about a third of what they didn't know coming into the course. And that's pretty typical of physics that are well-taught lecture course uh, on this material. Then they switched to what I'll call scientific teaching, where they had the students uh, come in, had a set of carefully developed problems or tasks the students would work through in small groups with the instructor circulating around acting as a facilitator for that learning. And then they measured how well the, the students were learning with that, with this new way of teaching. And here are the results you get across all the different instructors here and all the different uh, sections and in fact all the within the statistical noise here the students in all the, the, the different instructor sessions are learning now uh, essentially an equal amount and so you know it's really quite compelling here th that it shows how you have the same instructors and they simply adopted different teaching methods and in all cases, the amount of learning went up dramatically. Um, and in fact, uh, in, for the one I circled here, it's really kind of staggering. Those the st students in this instructor's class are learning six times more than they were before, just because this, this person adopted different teaching methods. So this really says, look, it's not anything, the really dominant factor is what methods the instructor uses, not anything else about the instructor. Um, this is result from computer science looking at a different measure. Uh, this is failure and drop rates and different subjects. This is work Beth Simon did at, U, uh, at University of California, San Diego. She came and worked in my program for a while picked up these techniques, just the one I showed you for the electricity example, went back to, to San Diego, worked with the other three instructors who taught the core computer science courses there, and applied that method to teaching these computer science classes. 
And as you can see, they, when they did that across the board, the failure and drop rates decreased. And so again, you have a result that this, you have the same instructors just using different teaching methods. They now have about a third the failure rate they did before. What this means in terms of students is that there's a, now a very large number of students who are now able to successfully pursue majors and likely careers in computer science who would not have been able to if these instructors were using the old-fashioned traditional teaching methods. It's, this is, you know, this is just better teaching is profoundly changing a lot of people's lives in this particular example. Um, here's one from, I want to put in a quick one from biology. Um, okay, I'm running late, so I'm not going to go into a lot of details. Basically, you know something about the memory. You know that the part of the brain that's the memory that sort of thinks about and processes things on short time scales, the so-called short-term working memory, it has a very limited capacity, unlike long-term memory. So I worried for a long time that biology, which has a particularly large amount of jargon to it, all this jargon was really kind of using up all the available brain cells, and they get much harder for students to learn biology. And so I finally got a couple of biologists to work uh, with me to test this. And what they did was a very small, simple intervention. And it was kind of surprising it had such an impact. Um, in the, so they taught, were teaching in much the same way I was talking about before, with active learning in the classroom and pre-reading ahead of time. The only difference here is in the pre-reading, uh, they rewrote the part of the textbook that one of the, the experimental section was using um, with, and taking all the new jargon that was being introduced in this section and replacing it with you know, a few English words that meant the same thing. And so then they had him go to class and to start the class, they introduced the jargon to the students and went through the same class and then gave them a common post-test. And here's how the two sections did on that post-test. Uh, this the complicated question on DNA structure and here's something on genomes. And you can see there's quite a large and here enormous difference in the result of how much students learn when they just had this very, really very small change at the beginning to reduce the demands of their brain of, of new jargon. So this is a rather, you know, relatively small first-time test. We need lots of other people to do it, but it's quite suggestive that there's really opportunities here for dramatically improving biology teaching by recognizing, I, I guess there's certain irony that biologists haven't paid as much attention to the human brain as physicists have, but anyway. <laughs> uh, so this is just an example of some, of some real potential gains there. Uh, I'll finish with this example that I started with. So in the, in the first two examples I gave, like most research in, this, uh, in science education, they looked at the learning that takes place in the whole course, and that's the most use, important thing. But that involves the learning takes place in the classroom, plus all the learning takes place in doing homework, studying for exams, and so on. And so in this study, we wanted 
be, uh, to specifically look at the learning just that takes place in the classroom because instructors pay more attention to that than anything else. We also wanted to test uh, a concern that's brought up repeatedly, which is, well, you can't cover as much in, the, in, you know, in, in an accurate learning classroom like this. And so, you know, could you really, uh, you, could you learn, uh, lose because of that? And so that was the, the reasoning behind this classroom study that I started at the beginning with, remember, we're comparing a highly rated, very experienced faculty member compared to this new PhD trained in my program in basically effective scientific teaching. And uh, the two sections, just to take a little more detail, were very carefully measured ahead of time. I think there were seven different tests looking at exam performance, homework performance, attitudes about learning, attendance, engagement, etc. Before this took place, the one week of lecture time this was used was carefully chosen so they had just finished a homework and exam and so they wouldn't be having another run for quite a while so they wouldn't be studying this material outside of class uh, and as I said before same learning objectives same class time same exam um, and the design of the experimental class had the same features I talked about before with this targeted pre-class reading in class, they had clicker questions to solve. This was somewhat a bunch more mathematical stuff, so some of the things they did with worksheets where they'd be writing things down, talking to each other, the same basic concept. Uh, and just in the discussion, the instructor would follow, not proceed their working on problems. Just to emphasize here, I mean, in a, in a class like this, and most of these classes, the instructor's still spending a bunch of time talking. They're explaining things. Uh, to the students, but it's all students, things students have been prepared to learn, not being told things before they re realize what and how to learn. And so that's what produced this histogram that I showed before. Uh, I actually want to emphasize the results here are, are a little more dramatic than you may appreciate because this was a quite a carefully developed multiple choice test and so random guessing would give a person about three here and so you really have to sort of say the amount of learning is how far above three the students score and so when you look at that you realize no the proportional amount of learning between these two is really even larger than you might have thought at first. Um, there's a couple of things I want to stress about this uh, here is People, one asks questions about, well, maybe this kind of teaching just helps the weak, the strongest students, or more often, well, it just helps the weakest students. Uh, what this shows is, no, the entire distribution has moved up. So this kind of teaching really helps every student with a, a human brain, because this is really the human, the way the human brain works. Um, also. Uh, just a couple, few other details. We measured engagement in this. Not, no surprise, the engagement in the experimental class was much larger because students were being given problems to solve all the time. Uh, and uh, one thing I didn't expect was the attendance, actually. In the, although previous to the experiment, the attendance was exactly the same. Uh, over the week, the attendance in the experimental section continually increased, and so it was significantly higher by the end. We've been transforming some physics courses in, in 
at the uh, advanced level at Stanford and some in math, and there it's been quite striking that the attendance is much higher in the in the transformed active learning classes. And I don't think it's any surprise to see they're learning something from from coming to class. Okay, I'm gonna. This is something on why it's so hard to stop lecturing, and I'm gonna skip through that and just jump to one of the big problems in getting people to switch and adopt these teaching methods that we saw from our science education initiatives is that the incentive system is really against it. Um, and so I won't go into the details of what the shortcomings of student evaluations are. Uh, I've written a paper on this and, and discussed you can go look at uh, if you want. But from the point of view of these better teaching methods, student evaluations provide no incentive, no support. They aren't reflected. They don't reflect any changes in the methods and the, and the better learning that's produced. And so if an institution wants to have widespread adoption of effective teaching methods, and that's what this institution should do, given all this data showing there really much more effective learning coming out, then you have to start as a basic starting point of measuring what teaching methods are being used in your courses. You know, it's the, if you're running a hospital and you know that some of your doctors are using antibiotics and some, most of them are using, or you suspect most of them are using bloodletting to treat patients, you know, and this is the pedagogical equivalent to bloodletting. It's been, you know, something was used a thousand years ago, and research says it doesn't work. You've got to first start by measuring what the doctors are doing. And in this case, you need to measure what teaching methods are being used. And so we developed a way to do this. It's a short, you know, simple survey, teaching practices inventory that gives a detailed, only takes about 10 minutes for instructor to fill out, gives a detailed characterization of the, all aspects of teaching a course in a quite objective way, and it allows one to then look to what extent are, are practices that research has shown are effective in enhancing learning, to what extent are those being used in a course. And you know, one of the reasons I came to Australia was because, in fact, the University of Queensland is one of the first institutions to apply this on a widespread way. Uh, and there's a bunch of other Australian universities, including this one, that are now discussing starting to use this, at least at different levels, to collect data on their teaching. And I think this will be a tremendous uh, step forward in improving science teaching. And Here's the link. I'll make these slides posted. You don't have to write this down. You can actually go try this thing yourself and see how it works. So let me let me stop now uh, and open the floor for questions. I just want to summarize that you know I think the scientific approach to science teaching has really shown us there are dramatically better ways, more effective ways. Uh, to teach, that there's a real expertise in teaching in the same way there is in science. And when this is adopted, it basically leads to dramatically improved learning. What I didn't show results on, but that was very clear from our work at the science education initiatives that have transformed hundreds of faculty in their teaching, 
it's also just a whole lot more fun. I mean, we have overwhelmingly where we sort of help people learn to do this right. They switch and they just stay switched. They find it enormously more rewarding. They're using their expertise more in their teaching. They're seeing the students more engaged and learning a lot more. And that's just a much more satisfying thing to do as a faculty member. So hopefully you're all convinced you want to do this. If you haven't, if you've been doing some of it, you'll do more. Um, and here's some good references to learn about these general ideas here. And here's a bunch of references and videos of this kind of teaching that we have at that website. So uh, thank you. So I'm going to take questions. Uh, the way I'm going to handle questions since they're taping this, uh, basically, I'll just call on people. You should shout out as loud as you can. And I'll repeat the question so it gets onto the videotape and then answer. But that doesn't have people on to run around with microphones. Yes? Um, thank you very much for that talk. Um, I'm a cognitive psychologist and I was I hope I didn't offend you too much with my oversimplification of the memory, but. Uh, but one thing you alluded to at the beginning, which was the metacognition and So let me let me comment on that. So so her question is, okay, she knows enough to when I was talking about monitoring one's own thinking, the technical term of that is metacognition. She's worried about the fact that I didn't talk about that and the importance of teaching that. In fact, that is incorporated. I I didn't take time to go into the details there. You're absolutely right. This being ability to monitor your thinking is really critical. It's actually built into uh, the teaching I described here in the sense that um, if you have people solving these problems, I mean, it's part of the feedback. First, it, it's a really uh, uh, important part of what they gain from these small group discussions, is what I would argue, is that where they're having to, to critique other people's thinking, where they're having to defend their own thinking, that that's actually uh, providing them with the practice of evaluating their own thinking. Uh, and that's really the most important part uh, of that. But it also gets helped when you, um, you know, in the follow-up summary, when you're going over what people are thinking right and wrong, in this very immediate, timely, and specific way that they get in the habit of realizing, of evaluating, and correcting their own thinking. So, it, so the training, I, I would argue that training for that is really built into this. Uh, and if I'd gone into more details, I would have given you 
more examples of how during the instruction one one tries to put a focus on people's testing their ideas uh, in this way. Yeah. How, and right at the beginning you mentioned how well your graduate students have come on in a couple of years when they're in the right. laboratory. Yeah. I guess my question is this. Um, what is the role of the undergraduate laboratory? Because you didn't really think about it. So yeah. just how you could do that. So what, what can we do there? So, so his his question is, and I talked at the beginning about how I came to think about this differently because of seeing how my graduate student or started so clueless about doing physics, even though they've done courses, and then how they got to be experts at working in the lab. So, uh, and then given that, what's the role of the undergraduate laboratories? So, first, the reason my I, you can understand why my graduate students become expert because, in fact, they're doing exactly the, what I said is the essential principle all day long, and it's a long day if you're one of my graduate students. Uh, they're, I'm giving them problems to solve, just figuring out, okay, what's their capability? Here's something hard to work on. I come back a couple hours later, give them feedback on it, they talk to other students, and all day long they're practicing doing you know real authentic problems in research and getting feedback on it that's why they develop so quickly I think that's a it, I'll expand a little on this because I think that's when done right it's my graduate education the model we have of doing research as your graduation is really very effective okay but then that takes us to the undergraduate instructional labs None of that's happening in instructional labs. But almost, and we've done some studies, other people have looked at this. Student, the, in, from a cognitive point of view, students are following a bunch of recipes, and they're not doing, and, and to the extent they're thinking about things, they're thinking about what the lab report format's supposed to be and other very structured things. It's not doing any of the authentic thinking they should have. Now, can they do that? Yes, and we have we have one paper out recently where we significantly restructured laboratories. It's in um, well, if you actually look under the research papers on the CWSEI, you'll you'll see it. But where it's comparing data and contesting scientific models, showing yes, they can really learn to think like scientists, quantitative critical thinking in that regard. But it really requires you to not say, okay, do this thing. It's, to ha it's, it's instead designing how am I going to have students do these kind of thinking and get feedback on that thinking. Okay, way in back. Uh, doing which? Uh, well, okay, yeah, I mean, uh, it, that's a challenge, okay? <laughs> so, you know, if, you're, if you want people to memorize particular items with particular labels, there's lots of good training processes about how to just memorize things. But 
I think if you talk to some anatomy people, they will they will argue, no, it's not about just remembering labels for particular things. There actually are some guiding concepts in that. And I think if you, you know, to the extent that's true, uh, and one's thinking about the anatomical principles you want people to learn, if you kind of see how the structure of all the different things you want them, that it's, yes, there may be a lot of jargon, there may be a, different, a lot of different items that you want to remember, but that they can see relations to them and how orga an organizing structure, that actually makes it easier for people to learn that. But, uh, you know, you have to have them learn jargon and if it's nothing but memorizing a long list of terms, then that's a whole different issue. But I, like I say, I don't think all people teaching anatomy would really agree if they thought hard about what expertise is. So, yeah, yeah. So I mean, the 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 only the main point I would make here is just to recognize that every new jargon term you introduce, it has a real cost. It's not just, okay, this isn't very important, it's not some that you know important for you to learn this, it's just easier for me to use this label. No, that doesn't work. You you throw something additional in the brain, you res you limit how much learning takes place. And so what you want to look at is if you're teaching anatomy, just okay, I've got some amount of jargon, let me think very hard about what's really essential and what could be considered non-essential, but I, I don't overwhelm the students. Uh, I mean, this happens, th this idea of reducing the cognitive load or demands on the working memory actually is true in, you know, I, I pick up the jargon there, but it's true in every field and every kind of different way people present things, so it really helps if you're very careful to very explicitly and clearly lay out the structure of what you're covering in a day, and so instead of being a bunch of independent, unrelated things to the students, it's clearly part of an overall structure. Uh, I'll give you an example of this is a bad way to present things uh, because it splits your attention between Two, two different screens and me, uh, so it would be better if I only had one screen here uh, and one that you didn't have to look a long ways back and forth. That's just these little things that just add little bits of extra thinking because every little bit hurts, essentially, if it's not essential to what you want the students to be learning and thinking. Yeah, okay, down in front, yeah. What do you mean by clicking these things? Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. So when I talk about clickers, I mean um, clickers are these little devices that look a lot like this and have a bunch, a number of buttons on them. And so every student has a person, also known as personal response systems. And so they're fairly, yeah. So I asked them. I thought they were. Uh, so then they're quiet in the what? They're not quiet in the lecture either? Uh, no, every student has one and, they, and, they, and the instructor has a receiver up, up front. And so every time a student pushes it, I can see who they were and what answer they chose. Normally, when during the class time, the instructor only looks at the distribution of choices. Uh, okay. Yes? Thank you very much. You spoke about how the instructors find this style so much more satisfying. 
Yeah. What about the workflow? It seems that it's much harder on an instructor to be dynamically responding to what the students are doing is the thing from sticking up the same slides that you've already given three times this year and the year before and the year before and talking through it and then closing down and walking away. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, if you want to teach really badly and, they, and, your, and, and your institution is happy with you teaching really badly, uh, you can make minimal amounts of work, right? You, you can do even less work if you don't bother showing up for class. But, you know, so, so you know, there's issues there. Uh, but, but being more, a little more serious about it, how much more work does it take is a reasonable question. Um, so what, and this is a very rough number, and we provided reasonable amount of support for helping people see how to do this, but, um, but our rough estimate from instructors who went through this transformation process, they said it was about 50 extra hours. Uh, now, you know, now that's not an enormous amount, but it's also not a trivial amount, right, uh, that you would spend on it. That was really a, a first-time thing. That's kind of the learning curve of seeing how to do it. Once you've learned how to do it, then it then people, I, I will say they usually spent more time on their teaching, but they didn't have to. I mean, they usually, because there's so much... It was kind of frustrating to me. I wanted to show, okay, they could switch over and then they wouldn't have to spend any additional time. But a lot of them just found teaching so much more fun, they were doing more than they had to. And um, I will say that for new in faculty, where we had support from the beginning, so they, didn't, they hadn't been using the same lecture notes for 15 years, um, those folks were, because we had support for them and had to teach guidance this way, they spent less time. So the new assistant professors who were kind of working with our program, they, they told us they found they were spending less time on their teaching than the other new assistant professors because those people were spending time, I mean, new assistant professors and teaching new courses spent an enormous amount of time, much of it quite poorly spent. Uh, and so uh, if you get people from the beginning, it turns out, but it really probably isn't any additional. Okay, that. Uh, there was an experiment that cited in the press for productivity improvement called the Hawthorne experiment. Yep. Uh, enough said. Let me talk about it. Uh, so, so he wants to know about the Hawthorne experiment. The Hawthorne experiment is one that you can find, in, uh, or Hawthorne effect is one you can find in many introductory psychology textbooks, and 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 it gets raised many times with this, and each that we have to write a little section that supplemented the paper uh, because they were, you know, the reviewers were very well, this is just doing something new, and the Hawthorne effect says if you just do anything new, uh, performance improves. Okay. It turns out the Hawthorne effect never existed. Uh, the original Hawthorne experiment and in, in, in when people go back and look at the actual data from, from this, it, there wasn't any effect. It just, somebody happened to think it was there and said something and it got picked up by psychologists. It's just one of these existing myths. Uh, and in fact, 
People then have tried many times to replicate it in educational settings. It never shows up that way. And if you think about it, it really doesn't make any sense that it would. Students are going from a different classroom, doing all kinds of different things from one to another all the time. And so the fact that in one course something is being different than it used to be the previous week is really kind of a very small perturbation for them. But in any case, the Hunter effect does not exist. It's simply a myth. The data, nobody's been able to, when people very specifically tried to get it, didn't happen. Well, I was going to ask you, were the aware of the experiment that you were conducting? Uh, they were aware, they weren't aware that it was an experiment trying to measure their learning. They were uh, aware that the it was, they were being taught in a quite different way that week than what they had before. Okay. But I'm really glad you gave me a chance to talk about the Hawthorne effect because it comes <laughs> over and over and people always wonder about it. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Uh, the example you gave for the active learning uh, task was like, a, you know, here's one problem, try to solve it, make a prediction, and then talk about it. Have you tried these university level courses using uh, your colleague Dan Schwartz's method of invention with contrasting cases that he's used with demonstrators? No, instead of, you know, you give a set of related cases and you have to discover the principle underlying them, which is yeah. the same as solving an individual problem. So I was wondering if you sort of tried that out in this situation, what happened? Yeah, so Dan Schwartz is a kind of psychologist. One of the main reasons I went to Stanford was the opportunity to collaborate with him. I, our groups are intermediate, so yes, I learned a great deal from Dan. Uh, and so, in fact, in some of our, our most recent uh, publications, we've gone to taking some of Dan's ideas of, and gradually giving students a physics concept and then working through problems to practice them, which is kind of the standard, the current gold standard kind of physics active learning. We then follow this idea of giving the students not telling them about the subject ahead of time, giving them a bunch of examples, having them try and formulate a general explanation, a theory, which they can't do, but they work at, then give them the explanation and at the end of the show, and, then, and, uh, and basically, yeah, it works out. Uh, uh, and so, uh, I can, uh, we're working on a number of other places that really taking the cutting-edge stuff from cognitive psychology and trying to bring it into, uh, and trying to figure out exactly how to implement these things well in different science courses. Dan, you know, Dan did a lot for seventh graders, but in fact, he's done it for college students, too, and showing that these things work across the board. Yeah, uh, yeah I think uh, the effect we're going to worry about is the announcement that maybe after one or two research, scientific research publications, that not that way form, they be so exaggerated in terms of the, the results that, uh, you know, which means you have to undo all this uh, learning. Everybody who assumes the fourth and second percent is true as you do. So I, I probably could call it the publisher by effect in terms of research, which uh, uh, points to the circumstances. But what I wanted to uh, really ask about was uh, uh, if you teach something more abstract like math, I don't know if you did this. Which requires maybe possibly more of a cognitive load because you have got an actual kind of like in that case a physical path where you 
So his question is, are there different things where there's just additional cognitive load or, or uh, uh, you know, in, because of mathematics? What I would say is we really have things uh, across all the sciences. There are some easy topics that are harder to learn or easier to learn. Um, I think it would be difficult to say there are there's things that are more or less abstract that make it more difficult. Usually what we what we run into is uh, and it has to do with the existing thinking. It's, it's sort of in one's normal thinking, how much of the idea kind of goes against your established patterns is really kind of what makes it the most difficult. And so some of those things that are the hardest aren't abstract at all. Like, you know, teaching people that if you have a big truck run into a little car, the force on the truck is the same as the force on the car. That's a very concrete example, metallic anyway, uh, solid example. And, and it's the fact that it is so familiar and goes against your very familiar established thinking, which is what makes it so difficult actually to overcome. So, so, I, and so I, I think that yes, there are certainly things that are easier and harder to learn, but I don't think it maps very clearly onto less, more or less abstract. And I think uh, math hasn't done quite as much as the sciences have in studying these methods, but to the extent they have, that it works in much the same way. Uh, yes. In So, so she asks how successful I've been at disseminating these ideas. I'm probably the least objective person you could find to say. <laughs> so, has you know, has the world changed? How all the courses are being taught? No. So, uh, somewhat limited. Uh, you know. Uh, yeah. What can I say? I, I go around to lots of different places. Uh, I get an invitation to speak roughly one per day uh, on average. Um, and so, you know, so people are paying some attention to this. I mean, I've gone around Australia. I find that at every institution I'm at, there's certainly a number of people who have, who have recognized and are, and are incorporated and pursuing these ideas significantly. Uh, but far from everybody, yeah. So it's coming, but how fast? We don't really have any data to know, to be honest, because people aren't using the teaching practice inventory yet. So. Uh, let's see. Yes. How explicit, how much is it important to be explicit with students about what those mental conceptual models are and about what incorrect models are? You spoke about Talking about the wrong answers, and how much do you actually need to say there is this misconception that you are having, yeah. and this is it? And how much do you have to explicitly give them that correct framework, and where do you really are? 
Uh, so his question is, how explicit do you need to be on bringing out the incorrect framework and, and, and talking about it? I think the answer is very explicit. You really need the person sitting there thinking, oh, I was thinking this, and oh, but now because of what he said, I can see how that really wouldn't work with this, and so I've got to change how I'm thinking about it. Okay, so really, the more explicit, and it goes back to the question about metacognition too, about reflecting on one's thinking being so critical. So I think the more explicit it is, the better. So you know, you want to be careful about putting the students on the spot when it's bringing it out. But you know, that's the nice thing about sampling all these opinions. You can kind of bring that out without putting anybody on the spot. One very effective technique uh, I've seen used is somebody who goes around and just calls on a group to say, okay, you know, choice number three there, can you come up with a reason that people might have chosen that and, you know, might have thought that answer was correct, okay? And so when we know there is a reason, doing that can bring it out for you. Yes? So difference between experts in the subject and experts in teaching the subject will will separate out. So so I would say if you have experts who really screw up the teaching, like you say, and jump in to give them the answer, then okay, if you've got a well set up problem based learning, maybe that's better. But I you know I absolutely guarantee you that it's not going to be as effective if you don't have the expert who can then, you know, make sure the students are working through the problems as you intend. I mean, I, uh, let me just say, I think this is a fundamental problem, uh, an error in the, in the initial design of problem-based learning, which was to take the experts away from the teaching of it, uh, because we know from lots of different input, you know, both that the, Base, fundamental, cognitive level, and the science uh, classroom level, we know that there are some essential roles that the instruct that an expert instructor, expert in the subject, can play if they're and if they're teaching properly. And so, you know, if you can't get the experts in the subject to teach. You know, if, you, if they insist on teaching badly, then yeah, you're better off maybe getting rid of them. But but if you have them teaching well, uh, they're going to do. It's absolutely going to do better. There are contrary pressures uh, in a classroom. Yeah. Uh, one of them is time. Yeah. Uh, one part of my question is, how much longer does it take to 
teacher course on learning-based timetable rather than teaching-based one. Yeah. The second one, the second pressure, is the student says, I don't want all this just to look the answers off, I've learned it. Never mind that they won't learn it as effectively, but they think they will. Yeah. How do you overcome that resistance to the student says, okay, I'll prepare to do it the hard way? Okay, so here's a question, two questions really. One, very different. Uh, one is on how do you cover the material, the staff, much material in the course. And the second question is how do you get student buy-in really to these teaching methods. And so uh, we've, we've, uh, we've tackled in the things I've worked on, we tackle both these quite explicitly, okay? And so, and this experiment was really one, a careful comparison of that. We have some other data across entire courses where they're tackling, covering the same amount of material. Now, what we found in this experiment, as well as the entire course, it, where people had a really quite carefully crafted lecture presentation, uh, that they could cover uh, only about, uh, they could cover 90% of the material, okay? And so, in, and that's actually reflected in this graph, if those of you who are used to looking at sort of, you know, tables like this, will recognize this is actually a very bizarre shaped graph. The reason it's very bizarre shaped, as it turns out, uh, is that this was a ceiling effect, that the students piled up at the ceiling. Only in the experimental course, they, were, they did not cover all 12 objectives. So there was one topic they did not get to. Okay. Now, it's true, though, that, that this level of, and, and that's reflected in this level of performance here. Uh, it is true that they still outperformed the students in the other section on that particular topic. So, hey, just from what they learned overall, uh, they still learned that better. Uh, but we find it's about 90%, but there's a bunch of techniques, uh, basically, that you really have to think about using your time most efficiently. Part of that is, a big part of that is by just moving the simple information transfer out, and so having this pre-reading. Uh, but there's a whole variety of other techniques we found to enhance efficiency. Uh, and and if you go to this website under instructor resources, we get those. But you know, really at the 90% level of 90% of coverage and factor two improvement in learning, it's you know, it's, it's to be a kind of line. Oh yeah, student buy-in. Uh, how do you get students to buy into this? Uh, this is again something we 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 dealt with very explicitly and, and frankly pretty uh, quite successfully. That um, first you have, you first have to make sure the students don't feel that they're guinea pigs in your experiment, and so uh, we kind of again and it's talked about in in here. We have another two-page thing on how to get student buy-in. Uh, and you need to introduce the teaching method to them very explicitly on the first day and explain, show them how you're doing this to enhance their learning, okay? And, and, and that's why it's being done this way. How the different components are going to work together. And we find that once they do that, uh, that in fact the students buy into this in a very real 
in a very substantial way. They recognize they're learning a lot more from what's from coming to class. You know, those students in that section, the attendance improved. The students started recognizing class was a more effective way of learning. We changed a few physics courses at Stanford. I got in that physics majors, and now students are carrying out a revolt, demanding all their courses be taught this way because they're seeing they're seeing that they're learning so much more uh, from from that experience. Maybe I may make this the last question. Uh, oh no, you asked me a hard question. <laughs> you talk about transforming the practices of hundreds of academic lecture. Yeah. My question is, can a lecturer or key sitting and observe a lecturer using active methods go away template or does it actually take more targeted induction into how to do active learning? Yeah, so her question is, can you just watch somebody doing this and then uh, pick it up reasonably well on your own? I, I would you know, never try the experiment. I'm doubtful. The reason I'm doubtful is this: to, to really implement these things reasonably effectively, it really calls for expertise. Okay? I mean, you know, and as an expertise, you recognize certain patterns and look for relationships. You know, when something happens, you need to, or you need to you need to worry about certain factors, or you'll get trouble or you get, you know, your experiment will fall apart, your research program will fall apart, uh, and here your classroom can fall apart. And so, um, so I wouldn't guarantee that somebody couldn't do that. We certainly have plenty of examples of people reading about it and start to implement it in little pieces and doing, you know, instructors are smart people. If they read carefully about it, if they're an experienced, thoughtful teacher, it's not that big, you know, a problem to learn. But it's not trivial either. You know, there really are a lot of details to, that uh, help make it better, which having in our program where we did so many, we had these science education specialists in the discipline who would help talk to the faculty about their activities and come in in their class and coach them through it. And that certainly seems to work better in some comparisons with people who just went to a workshop one time thing and came back and tried. So, uh, you know, I don't, it's certainly far from impossible, but it just, you have to recognize it is some expertise involved. It won't be a disaster, but people will get better over time, and if they can have some more ongoing support, it's likely.